right, all right, all right. Good, good, good. How's everybody doing? Those of you who are here with us in person, you doing all right? Those of you who are joining us online, give us a blip or a bleep or a bit or a bite. We're glad that you are with us. Uh, however it is in whatever capacity it is that you are with us. We are observing Advent. This is the Sunday before Christmas. Can you believe it? Christmas is coming up. The young folks in my household know it well. They've been counting down for months. We are observing Advent together here in our worship services. And uh, Advent is kind of an, it's an uncommon word. Um, it means arrival. And traditionally, um, Christians practice Advent by embracing, really as a spiritual practice, embracing the art of waiting. And maybe that's not the best word. I mean, that is the right word, but it's a particular kind of waiting. It's a hope-filled waiting. It's um, waiting on tiptoe, maybe. That's the posture of Advent. It's a, it is a waiting, but it's an anticipating. It's a hope-filled um, anticipation. That's probably maybe a better way to fill it out. Um, and there's a richness there for us. Um, you know, and part of it is just the sheer, you know, the fact that we don't like to wait. We like everything instant. And so waiting itself has that, you know, built-in kind of, you know, sort of um, exercising that particular muscle, <laughs> the muscle of patience. There's something beneficial there. Um, but also, and maybe more than that, the practice of Advent gives us a chance I think, to slow down and ask a question that we might be tempted to skip over uh, if we're not careful. And the question I'm thinking of, in particular this Advent season, is what exactly is it that we're waiting for? You know, if, if Advent is, is a time that looks forward to the arrival and it's to embrace the practice of waiting, what is it that we're waiting for? Well, we're waiting for the birth of Christ. Okay, yes, yes. And what does that mean? What is the meaning of the arrival of Christ? What does this mean? And I mean, I, that's, a, that's a big question, clearly. Um, but when we think about that question, like what? What is the meaning of the arrival of Christ? And understand that how, however it is that we answer that question, that's going to spill out and spill over in all kinds of directions, right? Because the way that we think about the meaning of the arrival of Christ ultimately is going to shape how it is that we think about what is now the faith that has surrounded the person of Christ. The Jesus Revolution, it's 2,000-year-old faith now all over the world. What is the meaning of Jesus? What is the meaning of the arrival of Christ? And therefore, as a secondary um, but, but direct consequence of how we answer that question, what is the meaning of the faith of Christ? And for those of you who are listening to this live stream, um, as a believer in Christ, as a follower of Christ, what, what is this thing that we've gotten into, for those of us who are Christians? What is this thing that we're into? It's a good question, and, and it's one, I, again, I think that we might be prone to skip over. It's certainly a question that has been answered in lots of ways over the years, decades, centuries. Um, and what, what we've said for, for, the, for our time together this Advent season is we, we really want to kind of go in search of some answers to that question. And, and what we said last week is that when you really go in search of the meaning of Christmas, what you find out is that Christmas actually begins long before Christmas. <laughs> Christmas begins before, that is to say, before the shepherds and before the wise men and before the manger. And Christmas actually begins long before that. And last week, we talked about um, really three, uh, well, I guess three poetic announcements of the arrival of Christ and how, 
how there's rich meaning buried in, in those, those three. And, and the one poetic announcement we started with last week, the servant songs of the prophet Isaiah, some 500 years before the arrival of Christ. Another example of this is, would be the, the song, the poem of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. We're not going to take time to look at that one. Um, but this morning, we're going to look at the third poetic announcement and anticipation of the arrival of Christ. Um, and within this poem, the embedded meaning of the arrival of Christ. And that is to say that this morning, we're going to look at uh, Mary's poem, Mary's Magnificat, it's referred to, um, comes from the Latin word, which is the first word in the, in the Latin um, translation of the Bible, Mary's Magnificat is called that because it begins with the word Magnificat in Latin and English, my soul magnifies the Lord. So let's talk about Mary a little bit, the mother of Jesus. Um, when we say mother of Jesus, that might throw us off a little bit because, you know, chances are for you and for me, when, when I think about a, a mother, I think about, you know, a, a woman, a young, a young woman. But what we, what we know most likely is that Mary was a teenager uh, when she was drawn up into this story. And we're going to begin looking at what's called the Annunciation. Um, but Mary was a young, young Jewish, young Jewish girl. She would have been steeped in Scripture. Steeped in the worship of Yahweh, Mary, Mary, by all accounts, Mary loved God. Um, she was not married. She was engaged to be married. Um, Mary was a virgin. And Mary lived in dangerous times. Mary lived in a dangerous place. And in dangerous times. And I think it's important for us to scoop this into our imagination as we begin this conversation about Mary. Uh, and, 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 you know, partly because a lot of times when we think about Christmas and we think about Mary, we think about this peaceful, serene, kind of, you know, pixie dust kind of scene. And we even sing the songs, you know, Silent Night. And, and we, we, you know, we have this really calm, serene image. Um, but it's important for us to remember that historically speaking, like, right, like if we're trying to, you know, jump in our time machine and go back and try at least to put our feet in Mary's sandals, um, she lived in dangerous, perilous, difficult times. I heard recently, and you, you may have heard this, but I heard recently that, um, uh, that recently there have been some archaeological work going on. Uh, specifically around the region of Nazareth, and that archaeologists have found several ancient, you know, roughly 2,000-year-old uh, homes and had begun to excavate these homes. And one of the common, uh, common things that they found in these, you know, residential homes for ancient dwellers in Nazareth is that it was, their archaeologists are coming to realize that it's common for these homes to have secret chambers, like under the floor or in a, behind a wall that the, the home was built, and, and then this, this secret chamber was, was placed in the home, either, again, under the floor or, or behind a wall. And what scholars have begun to put together is that this became a common practice for the residents of, of the region in and around Nazareth because, because it was common for Roman soldiers just to burst through the doors of a Jewish home and steal the people's food. And so people like Mary learned to design their houses to include a place where they could hide their food so they could continue to feed their family. It's a, it's a desperate, difficult time for Mary and her people. Just a few years before, we know from, from history that just a, a few years before the Annunciation and the events that we're about to read about in Mary's life, um, there had been an attempted revolt against the authorities of Rome by Jewish, well, mostly young Jewish men had attempted a revolt against Rome. And of course, that revolt was crushed by the authority and the power and the military 
of Rome. And then in response to that revolt, the authorities had crucified thousands of young Jewish men. And they were hung on crosses all along the roadside between the villages of Nazareth and other surrounding villages. And so Mary, even as a young child, walking the streets of her own region, she would have seen these young Jewish men crucified by the thousands um, by the authorities of Rome. She lived in a difficult, desperate, violent, cruel time and place under the boot of the cruelty of Caesar and Rome and then more directly under Herod. In fact, we have the detail, uh, as you may be aware, uh, when, when King Herod, the, the, you know, the regional ruler on, uh, at the behest of Caesar, under the authority of Caesar, the regional ruler, um, when he found out that someone had been born who was referred to as the king of the Jews, Herod was personally threatened by that. Uh, and he made an order throughout the region that all the young boys would be killed. Just the day-to-day cruelty of living under these authorities. That's Mary's world. This is, this is where she lives, the time and the place. She lived daily under the dangerous and desperate cruelty of Rome and of Herod more directly. So that's Mary. That's, that's who we're talking about here. So we want to get to her Magnificat, her poem, when she burst out in song um, over what God is doing. But we want to begin with what's called the Annunciation, where the angel Gabriel comes and announces to Mary um, that she'd been chosen by God. So let's read it. Luke chapter 1, verse, beginning with verse 26. In the sixth month, that would be the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. So that's the region of Galilee, the town of Nazareth, that's where Mary is. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph in the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. And I just want to pause right there. There's something I think important to notice here. Notice the number, the frequency of proper names that are given to us in this account. Well, first of all, the name of the angel is given to us, Gabriel. But then notice the proper the, the names of places and of people that are mentioned in this account. Gabriel was sent by God to a town where? In the region of Galilee, what town? Oh, Nazareth, that particular town. To a, a, a virgin who was engaged to a man. What man? Oh, it's Joseph. Uh, what is Joseph's lineage? Uh, he's of the house of David, King David. That's Israel's great King David. Uh, and who's the virgin? What was her name? Oh, her name was Mary. It's worth recognizing that, again, in addition to Gabriel, the specific mention. What place are we talking about? We're talking about the region of Galilee, a town named Nazareth. We're talking about a man named Joseph, who is a descendant of uh, Israel's king, David. And Joseph is engaged to a young woman, a young woman who is a virgin, and her name was Mary. It's worth asking, what, what is the significance? Why do we encounter these very specific names of places, and of people. And I just want to say as material for your reflection, the reason these specific places and people are mentioned is because the God who is acting in this story is interested in particular places and particular people. This is a God, not of the abstract, but this is a God of real people in real places at real times. And this happens to be a story that was 2,000 years ago in the lives of real people at a real place in a real time. But it's still true of the nature of this God. He is intimately interested in the intimate real-time details of the real-time lives 
of real people, people like Mary and Joseph and people like you and me. This God is intimately interested in the details of our lives. Verse 28, and he came to her and said, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed. I'm sure there's a number of ways that could be translated. She was, what is going on here? She was perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. And now we get the part that the angels always say when they appear. The angel said to her, don't be afraid. That's normally the first thing the angel says, right? But in this case, Gabriel was so excited about the message that he had to deliver to Mary that maybe he got ahead of himself for a little bit. Oh, let me back up. Let me get back on script here. Mary, don't be afraid. This is important um, as well. You know, I realize that in some categories, in some contexts, many of us who, who grow up in the context of God talk and of faith and of the context of religion and all that, sometimes it seems like the people around us almost go out of their way um, to try to place in our hearts and minds fear that we, that we should by right be afraid of God. And yet every single time in Scripture when an angel appears over and over again, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Somebody said, and I haven't gone to the trouble of counting them, but someone said, that you can find the words, don't be afraid, spoken by God or by angelic beings to people 365 times. That's one time for every day. Don't be afraid, God says. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. She was much perplexed and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you will name him Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus savior again he will be great and will be called son of the most high that's a title for caesar he'll be called son of the most high and the lord god will give him the throne of his ancestor david wow we're talking about a king a real king who will receive a throne that's now we're invoking the ancient Jewish hope and promise and expectation of David, a house that would reign forever, God said, uh, to the ancient one. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Everybody, this is political talk. Talking to Mary, who's living under the boot of Caesar. Mary has a king over her. Herod is his name, and Caesar over Herod. But the angel says, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be? I'm a virgin after all. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. That's a title for Caesar. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing is impossible with God. Verse 38. <clears throat> then Mary said, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And the angel departed. And with those final words, Mary becomes the picture of what we would call discipleship. She becomes the picture of <coughs> the embodiment of a human being taking on full participation in the call of God. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And so that's the annunciation. The angel announces to Mary that she's been chosen by God to bear a son. 
conceived by the Holy Spirit? And her response, yes. Here am I. I'm in. And so Mary takes up and goes to visit her, let's say her aunt Elizabeth, older than her, a relative uh, of Mary's. And she goes and she goes to visit Elizabeth. And we have the account here, Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country. Elizabeth and Zechariah live out in the country where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, (coughs) and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? That's stunning. For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. So Mary goes and she greets Elizabeth. The child in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. And then Luke gives us this beautiful song where Mary bursts out in praise to God. And in celebration, she's full of joy. And she says this. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown, the str- he's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. According to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. Now, a couple of things I want to talk about this morning and then maybe bring, hopefully, some application. I want to talk about what's what's present in this poem, and I want to talk a little bit about what's not present in this poem, because I think that's important as well. And then again, I want to talk a little bit about... um, what we do with this, how we, what, what this might mean for us. Um, first of all, and, 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 you know, if you'll give me some allowance, this is really serious for me, and I, I do have some serious things to, to, to draw out of this, but I want to just begin with what might not be so obvious because I feel so serious about this. But, but Mary here, and what Luke is communicating to us, Mary here is filled with joy. What she's filled with, she is delighted over God. And, that's, and that delight comes out of her in the form of this song. And so I want to ask you, if, if we could, just to hopefully set the tone, even though, again, what we have to talk about this morning is serious. But I, I still, nonetheless, I want to think about, you know, just ask you to reflect on this question. What is it in your life that would cause you to break out into spontaneous song, like making up a song, right? Like, like, oh, we just, like I'm thinking in my household, when we're having a discussion about summer vacation, we finally pick a date when the time when we're going, we're going to go to the beach. This particular week, I could think about my kids bursting out and say, oh, we're going to the beach, we're going to the beach, hey, we're going to the beach, right? So like any minute now, I'm thinking that we're going to hear that my alma mater, the dear old Aggies, have been put into the college football playoff. Like, that's going to happen, right? Like, any minute, don't, don't burst my bubble, I see. Don't burst my bubble. Any minute, that's going to happen. And I'm going to burst out into song. Dear old Aggies in the college playoff. Going to wipe the fields with their faces, whatever, you know. I mean, so just burst out into song. So what is it, what is it that might cause you just to burst out into song? You know, I'm thinking about, again, I think about my kids, you know, on Christmas, Christmas Eve, right? Tomorrow is Christmas, going to wake up with some presents, hey, 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 right? So the point is, 
this is what's happening with Mary. She's, she's had this experience, this angelic encounter. She goes and she visits her aunt, and she is breaking out into song and riffing, but as we're going to see, not entirely making up this song. She's actually drawing from rich, her tradition. She's actually drawing from it, but she is riffing in the moment, making up a song to uh, pour out her delight, her utter joy over what God is doing. And again, we're going to look at the content of the poem in just a minute. But yes, she's delighted about what God is doing in her and for her and that she's at the center of this story. But you can see that her hope and her, her, hope and her joy goes well beyond her. She's thinking about Israel. She's thinking about the house of Jacob. So Mary is delighted over God, right? So the first thing to observe it, what's in this poem is that Mary is delighted about God. God has revealed himself to her. He is acting in her life, and she is overjoyed about God. The nature of God, the character of God, the presence of God, the activity of God in her life. She is delighted over God. Now, hold on to that. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Secondly, notice, please, that Mary is singing about revolution. Notice the content of her poem, particularly as she turns the corner in what is given to us as verse 51. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And now we really get to it here with verse 52. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. That is a shot at Herod. That's a shot at Caesar. And lifted up the lowly. That is audacious hope, right? She's and her people are the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things. Now that's, they're hungry. Most Israelite people, Jewish people, were hungry. Their food is being stolen. He spilled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped the ser his servant Israel, right? So now this is bigger than just her personally. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now we need to pause a little bit because too often in our use of the word mercy, the word mercy tends to mean uh, to relent from something uncomfortable, right? Like we, when we were growing up, when we were kids, we'd sit in the back of the bus and we'd play the game Mercy where we'd grab one another's hands and try to bend one another's wrists back. And when, when you know, someone's talking to you, you'd say, mercy, 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 right? And that means stop, stop bending my wrists. And, you know. So too often that, that's what mercy means to us. But that's, that's not what, what, what mercy means in Scripture in the, and certainly not in this context. Well, actually what the word mercy means is in the passage itself. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his compassion would be a, probably a better translation. According to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. So Mary realizes that, that what's happening now is the continuation of this ancient story that begins at least with Abraham. We're talking Genesis 12, if you want to go read the backstory there that she's referring to. But there is, there is revolution in this poem. She is singing about God's overthrow of the power structures of the world as she knows it. That's what she's talking about. God, Mary says, is taking action to throw down the mighty and to exalt the humble. Mary is singing this song, and it's joy, and there might be some foot stomping and some clapping, right? And she's singing, the oppression of the oppressed is ending, is what Mary is singing about. The humiliation of the lowly is coming to an end. God is throwing down the powers from their thrones, and he is exalting the lowly. The arrogance of the mighty, the haughty, mighty, fancy, robed, and sceptered ones, their arrogance is being ended by God. She is singing about the fulfillment of, well, the ancient dream of Israel, beginning with God's promise to Abraham, where God said that he is going to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation, a great people group, 
and through that people group, all the people groups of the earth would be blessed. And I substitute other words for nation because too often when we hear the word nation, we think about a flag and, you know, borders and all that kind of thing. But really the idea is I'm going to make your tribe great and through your tribe, all the other tribes of the earth will be blessed. And so in this ancient Jewish hope, and Mary is speaking right from this lexicon, in order for that to happen, in order for that ancient promise to Abraham, in order for that to happen, the enslaved must go free. Uh, the hungry must be provided with food. It wouldn't be normal for someone to rejoice uh, that God is taking action to fulfill this promise and still be hungry and still be enslaved. That wouldn't be normal. So what Mary understands and what all of Israel knew, that in order for this ancient promise given by God to Abraham, in order for that to become fulfilled, well, their oppression must end. Their, they, the hungry must be provided with food. The orphan uh, must be embraced within a family. Those who are being stepped on by the cruel powers must be liberated. And all of that necessarily means that those who are doing the stepping on of others must be stopped from stepping on others. Those who are doing the oppressing of others must be arrested, stopped from their oppression. And so, in order for this great hope, and we're talking from Abraham right on through the whole story of Israel, this is what Mary is now voicing, in order for this great hope to be fulfilled, that means that God would have to win a victory over the bullies. The power brokers of the world would have to be taken down by God. The brutal forces ruling over the lives of Mary and her kindred, they would have to be dethroned, defanged, deceptored somehow, some way by God. And so Mary is drawing upon this ancient promise given to Abraham, and then as it was worked and reworked and imagined and reimagined and spoken and respoken by the prophets and all the way through the history of her people. All of these ideas that Mary has compressed into this song over centuries had become themes quite familiar to Israel, quite familiar, embedded in the Psalms and the prophets again and again and again. And so in a phrase, you can think of this theme or these themes as what has been called the great reversal. This became the encapsulated hope of Israel that someday there is going to be a great reversal. God's great reversal is going to unfold. Those who are enslaved will be set free. Those who are being stepped on by the boot of the cruel, tyrannical authorities, they will be liberated. Those who are hungry will be fed. Those who have been disenfranchised will be embraced. This is a common theme. In fact, Mary, it's been, it's been pointed out by observers far more observant than I, but it seems apparent that Mary, even in her Magnificat, is actually drawing upon uh, what would have been her ancestor in, her, in the story of Israel, and that would be um, Hannah, who is the mother of Samuel, who was a prophet over Israel. Um, actually, Samuel was, was really the last of the judges. Samuel represents really the transitional generation from the time when Israel was, um, was shepherded by the judges. Uh, and then after Samuel, we have the transition to kings, Israel having a king. Of course, beginning with King Saul, and that didn't go well, and on we go from there. So, so that's Samuel. And the mother of Samuel was a, a woman named Hannah. And she was childless, and eventually God gave her a child, and that's Samuel. And so Hannah, um, it's a beautiful story. She decided to, in effect, give Samuel back to God um, by virtue of leaving Samuel at the uh, uh, tabernacle 
to serve the Lord. I don't know how a two-year-old is much help around the tabernacle, but she, that's what she did. She dropped off Samuel with uh, old, old prophet Eli, and Samuel worked with Eli there in the tabernacle at Shiloh. But we have a song given to us in 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, given to us uh, by Hannah on the occasion of Hannah giving over her uh, young child, let's just say he was roughly two years old, when she gave him to Eli at the tabernacle in Shiloh, Shiloh. And Hannah gives us a song in that moment, and you can feel in the tone and texture uh, that maybe in Mary's heart, in her you know, scripture-saturated imagination, maybe Mary was even drawing upon this song from Hannah. Certainly many of the themes are in common. Listen to this. 1 Samuel 2. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. There is no holy one like the Lord, no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk, uh, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Doesn't that sound a lot like Mary's Magnificat? Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry are fat with spoil. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Again, there's that theme of reversal in Hannah's song, and we have that very same theme in Mary's Magnificat, this theme of the great reversal. And wouldn't you know it, that the child that Mary gives birth to um, when he reaches somewhere around his 30s and he begins his public ministry, uh, <clears throat> in one of his first sermons he begins also with a poem, just like his mother had given us a poem in the Magnificat. Jesus begins his most well-known sermon with a poem, and right in that poem is this very same theme of the great reversal. He begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see that reversal there? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And so, in a word, or in two words, Mary is singing about revolution. And this revolution, and, and it's not, she's not, uh, I'll use the word riffing as if, it's not as if she's making stuff up. She is speaking from the ancient story of Israel, which has always been the dream of Israel, to, to, to be liberated from their enslavers, uh, to be liberated from their oppressors, and so on and so on. And Mary is speaking about this is that revolution unfolding here and now. And as you would expect, within revolution, if revolution is going to happen, that means there's going to be this reversal. And she is very much singing about real social, um, societal change. And that, I think, is obvious. Now, that's what's there in this Magnificat and its themes that she would have inherited at least from Hannah, perhaps, and certainly others as well. And these themes pass on to her son, Jesus, in addition. That's what's there. So let me just say what you already know, but let me just say a little bit about what's not there in that poem. And again, the context for these reflections, I go back to the beginning of what we said earlier. Our quest here is to discover the meaning of Advent, the meaning of Jesus. Advent is the expectation of the arrival of Jesus. What does that mean is the next very reasonable follow-up question. What, what does the arrival of Jesus mean? And again, as a secondary 
spill over from that, what then does the faith of Jesus mean, right? The reason we would go in search of the meaning, unvarnished meaning of the arrival of Jesus, the reason we would go in search of that is because it has direct implications upon the question of what does the, the Jesus revolution mean? What does it mean for me as a person of faith in Christ, as a follower of Jesus? And when you ask Mary, what does the arrival of Jesus mean? What you get in her answer is revolution and the great reversal. That's what the arrival of Jesus means. That's what's there in her joyful song of delight. And so, that brings about some sincere reflections for me. And I want to tell you two things that I notice that are noticeably absent from Mary's celebration of what the arrival of Jesus means. The first thing that you notice that's absent, and again, this is just me talking from my perspective, just bouncing around from Mary's idea and comparing and contrasting that with what I have more or less experienced and inherited in the context of the Christian faith. What's noticeably not present in Mary's song is one of the things that is, I think, and again, in my experience, completely present in the practice and the rhetoric about what the Christian faith means. And it's what I would call spiritualized conversionism. In my experience, and maybe this is just me, but in my experience, the you could almost say, and I may push this a little bit, but you could almost say that the totality of the meaning of the Christian faith is to go about seeking conversions. That is to tell people that, you know, uh, you have a real problem to start with because God is holy and you are not. And because God is holy, he's going to have to judge uh, your sin and that's not going to be pleasant. But we've got good news for you. You can pray this prayer uh, with me and place your faith in Christ, and, and if you do that, then your sins will be forgiven, and, and, and you won't, not only will you not be punished by God, but you get to go to heaven when you die. I'm referring to that whole model as spiritualized conversionism, where what it means to, to uh, identify with Christ means to be converted, that is to pray the sinner's prayer, have my sins forgiven, and then get on board with seeking more conversions of more others, Right? That, that, and and in, some ways, in some ways, you could say that has become the totality of the meaning of Jesus in the minds of many. And my point, my reason for bringing this up is that not only is that nowhere present in Mary's song, but what is present in Mary's song is almost nowhere present in the common thinking of what the meaning of Jesus is. That's staggering to me. And, and my, my, my reason for bringing that out, well, it's, it's just that. I think it's important that we might recognize that the things that we have learned to talk about um, predominantly, that is, you know, what I'm calling conversionism, that theme is nowhere in Mary's song. If you ask Mary what the meaning of Jesus is, you get nothing like what we talk about mostly. And simultaneously, again, speaking from my own experience, you can compare it to your experience, that's fine. Mostly, the themes that Mary is emphasizing, not emphasizing, but what, what she's talking about revolution and reversal, again, in my own experience, those themes are practically entirely missing from at least my experience of the rhetoric and the thought world of, you know, evangelical Christianity, at least, in my own experience. To me, that's worth reflecting on 
and it's worth taking serious. If you ask Mary what the meaning of Jesus is, she's going to tell you revolution and reversal. The second thing that's missing from Mary's song is what I'm calling God as bad news. Um, notice when you, when you look at Mary's song and you take it for what it is, she is delighted. She's exultant. There is hand clapping and foot stomping going on. She has bursted out into song over God because of God. And I just want to say, just that simple, pure observation, again, brings about in me an awareness of a real contrast in my own life, yes, but also in the lives of many who I know and love. And that is basically what we could call God as bad news. I watched a video this week. I saw it, I think, in a social media feed. And um, the, the name of the, I, I don't know if it was a blog post or what, but it included a video. But the, the headline that caught my attention, um, it said, guarding the gospel. And I thought, oh, you know, here's some people who are interested in guarding the gospel. Like I'm now I'm now you got you have my attention. If your agenda is to guard whatever that might mean, to guard the gospel, like I want to know what you have to say. And so, you know, it was maybe it was bait in my social media feed, whatever. I took the bait and tap, you know, I want to see more right here. And um so I don't even know you know, if it was a website or something embedded, I don't really know. But it was a really well-produced video with uh, kind of like video sound, uh, what am I saying? Audio video clips of people speaking. And I guess the idea was that, you know, you put all these voices together and they are articulating the gospel. Right, like as this organization is guarding the gospel. To me, the way I took it was, you know, we're here to make sure that everybody understands what the real gospel is, right? So listen to this video clip. And I was stunned. I was stunned as they put this thing together. And that's really what I was drawing upon just a minute ago. Um, their starting point was this notion that you know, people must understand, they said, that God is holy. And because God is holy, he cannot and will not tolerate evil and wickedness. And people are evil and wicked. And that means that people have a problem, right? So the entire, what I'm saying is, the, the entire, before, before they can get to any good news, they must establish the bad news first. And basically, basically, nobody's going to say it this way. But this is the way I'm saying it because this is the way it comes out in the wash. Basically, the bad news is God. And people, I'm just telling you, both of y'all watching this live stream, I'm just telling you, that idea would make no sense to Mary. She would not, she would not understand. What can you possibly mean? Yahweh the Lord, he is God. Good news. He is hand clapping, foot stomping. Good news. He is the Savior. He is the rescuer who is putting to an end our oppression and the oppression of my people. He is the rescuer who is lifting us up out of our humiliation and our lowliness. He is lifting us up out of the ashes, Hannah might say. That's who God is. Now, I know that sometimes when I talk about this, it may feel like I'm overstating it. And maybe I am. But I know that this is real. This idea that the rhetoric from within the Jesus movement, that is from within Christianity over the years, the rhetoric as it has come out in the wash, the rhetoric is that before you get to the good news, you have to establish that God is the bad news. And so the rhetoric as it's come out of us collectively is that God is, not, that God is the problem. And that's built into this theological construct that we've created that Mary would not understand anything 
about. And I know that that's true, and I think you know it's true as well when you're honest. But I want to give you as an example, a few years ago, there was an atheist group who wanted to do an advertising campaign. I don't know if it ever made it to America. It started in Great Britain. There was a plan for America. I don't know if it ever happened. But they began an advertising campaign, and they put together a sign, and it was posted on billboards and on, this, on buses and so on, uh, at least in Great Britain. And the sign reads this. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now, this is a little bit convoluted, but I think you can follow what I'm saying. The reason these atheists would feel that it's appropriate to message a Christian but post-Christian society with that message is because they understand that for most people, in the imaginations of most people, the reality that there is a God is at least in part, and for some in large part, bad news. These atheists understand that, and therefore, they're going to put together an ad campaign which is designed to appeal to people. And what do they say? There's probably not a God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. Again, why would they say that? Because what they understand is that in the imaginations of most people, the idea that there's a God is at least in part, and for many in large part, Bad news, something that we should worry about. I'm just saying, everybody, Mary would have no idea what they're talking about. Mary is delighted over God because the reality of the Father heart of God and his activity in the specific real-time lives of specific real-time people, his, his action is, 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 is the release of oppression. It is the liberation of of those who have had the boot of cruelty on their necks. It is the feeding of the hungry body and souls and spirits and imaginations. It is the rekindling of a hope that's all but died out. That's who God is. And so Mary burst out into song. So what do we do? What do we do with this? Um... I want to try to suggest a direction, at least, for answering that question. And I'm thinking on two levels, individually and, yes, collectively. Um, let me just say, it's difficult for us here, we're, I'm talking to, you know, 21st century North Americans, it's difficult for us to put our feet in Mary's sandals. We are not, at least politically speaking, we're not oppressed. Most of us are not, you know, we're not in danger of soldiers bursting through our doors and stealing all the food out of our houses. That's, that's not the reality that we live in. And yet, I want to invite you to reflect internally upon the areas in your own life where some of these descriptions do fit. Um, Hannah talking about the being lifted up out of the ash heap. Mary talking about being lifted up out of her lowliness humiliation, brokenness, right? So like, I guess you could think about it like this. Where are the places in my life where I am desperate? Where I am at the end of my rope? The places in my life where, where the hope, because that's really what Mary's expressing. She's expressing uh, delight-filled hope. So where are those places in my life where the hope is all but gone out? Where I am all too aware of my emptiness, my inadequacy, where the forces 
the forces have gotten the better of me. Maybe it's not the forces of Caesar. Maybe not even a, a force that's <coughs> visible or, even, or tangible in any way, but a force nonetheless. The forces have gotten the better of me. The force called fear. The force called anxiety. Where are those places? Think about those places. Identify those places in your own life, in your own inner world, maybe. And now, bring together Advent. Waiting. I want to invite you to just go to that place in your life and just sit there. Sit in those ashes. Sit in that broken place, as difficult as it may be. You know, these are the aspects of our lives that we spend quite a bit of energy um, in ignoring or casting aside or covering up or hiding from, hiding from ourselves, hiding from others, whatever. I think that this theme of revolution and reversal invites us instead to go to those places and just sit there and practice that hope-filled waiting. Jesus, come. Jesus, come here to me, to this place, and rescue me. Save me. Come and save me. Come and redeem me, even in this And then, secondly, I'm thinking about application of this. And when I say this, what I'm hoping, what I'm hoping we're accomplishing today is to, to get into Mary's imagination for what Jesus means. Right? Like, that's, that's the point of all this, is for us to get into her imagination. And as I've suggested, by going a little bit out of my way to talk about what's not there, I think in order for us to get into Mary's imagination, we're going to have to abandon some stuff that we've inherited. So I think a second application of the adoption of Mary's perspective on the meaning of Jesus is to think not only individually about, you know, this, how this impacts me and my inner world, but also to think collectively. Like, like she's, she's exalting over not just something that God is doing in and through her as an individual, but she, this, she's talking about her people. Like, this is, this is not about just Mary. This is about, in Mary's mind, it's about her people, you know? And so, I think... In order for us to get into Mary's imagination about what is authentically the meaning of Jesus, we've also, we're also, I think, it's natural for us to think collectively and to think, where is the disenfranchised one? Where is the humiliated one? Who are the hungry ones? Who are the stepped on ones? Where are the ones who are being overlooked or perhaps even overtly stepped on or disenfranchised? The meaning of Jesus is that they are lifted by his arrival. They are lifted out of their lowliness, humiliation, disenfranchisement, stigmatization, whatever it might be. Where are they? And because, as we sang a moment ago, I want this heart in me, the heart of Christ, the spirit of Christ in me, then it becomes only natural for me to become the embodiment of the uplifting, of the re-enfranchising, of the finding, and I guess maybe to kind of go 
bigger and more, but to find the places where death is still dealing its deathliness and become the living, breathing conveyor of life in the lives of the people in my world. Everybody, as simple as that sounds, I'm telling you, that's what Mary thinks this is all about. That's what she thinks this is all about. She thinks this is all about the end of oppression, the end of her humiliation, and that of her people. And so, I'm just telling you, if that's what it means for Mary, that's what it means for me. And I think that's what it means for you. That is Mary's hope that it's Christmas. So here we are in Advent, looking forward to the arrival, longing, yearning for the arrival. And now we're able to put a little bit more flesh on that second question. The arrival of what? Well, it's the arrival of Mary's hope. It's the fulfillment of the hope that she's speaking of. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.